Hey, thanks for joining us here on The House Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this message. If you want to learn more about The House, check out our website at welcometothehouse.com or download The House app. So glad that you're here. Welcome to everybody online. Come on, let's give everybody a hand who's watching online. Well, I am excited. Listen, I, I love uh, ministering. I love speaking. Uh, but uh, I have a friend in today. And uh, I'm going to just give you a little background. Uh, it's good for us to bring in friends every now and then. Uh, that way you think we have some. Uh, uh, but um, so 10 years ago, we started be the one ministries and um we we started that out of our home <laughs> uh I'm, we moved all the kids into the kitchen uh the dining room and we made a big giant room and we made custom bunk beds uh and bought those really cheap mattresses uh that are kind of foamish uh foam and uh we had them all in there and we started this ministry uh and we didn't have nothing. And so when I tell you we were living by faith, uh, that means uh, we had no money. <laughs> we had none. And so we would travel. And uh, I was at a Baptist church and doing like a D now. This was a long time ago. And Chad was there as a college student, as one of the counselors. And uh, little did I know we both needed money. So yeah, he, they were like, hey, we need a counselor. He's like, how much are you paying? <laughs> and, and, and they were like, hey, we need you to come. And I was like, I'm coming. <laughs> and so we met. And like a year and a half later, uh, he was offered a, a, a pastor position in Carothersville, Missouri. And so young pastor, uh, and he said, man, I, I, I would love for you to come. And so there was a time within a couple of years that I went, you know, four or five times, and I, and listen, it was so awesome when we went, because they took care of us, and uh, I, I loved going to Carothersville, I loved being with Chad and Monica, because I was like, baby, we eating this week, <laughs> come on, somebody, we eating, <laughs> and so, um, then, after a couple years, they transitioned that church over, and, and went to um, serve a pastor um, that is, was leading Cape First, in Gerardo, Missouri, is that right? Cape Gerardo. And um, that church just has had just incredible growth, and and he serves his pastor there. And uh, I love the story. He, he So I just want you to know that I'm not looking for people to speak. Like our church, we have a lot of people who speak. And um, if I ever bring someone here, it's because we know them. We know their character. Uh, and, and here's what, just so that you know, I care about their relationship with God their relationship with their wife, you know what I'm saying, their relationship with their kids, and the way they conduct themselves financially. And if all of those things are good, then we'll talk about it. You know what I'm saying? So we just don't throw somebody up here. And so he, he and his pastor have been just talking about how he would grow in leadership. And the first year that he was there, his pastor uh, made him drive a bus. He, he was a pastor, and his pastor made him drive a bus. And uh, years, years later, his pastor, he was, they had that conversation. They were talking about it. And his pastor said, I, I was testing you. I wanted to see what kind of a character you had. I knew that you had an anointing. I knew you could preach. I knew you could lead. I just wanted to know if you were humble. And so for a year, uh, this guy drove a bus picking up kids. <laughs> he said some of them were nice and some of them weren't. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, but I just want you to know that 
when we give honor, we don't give honor for a man. In just a second, I'm going to ask you to honor uh, Pastor Chad. And we're not clapping for a human. Um, but, but here's what we do with honor. Honor's all throughout the Bible. And just this is just a practical nugget. But if you, what, if you don't honor, then you will never repeat what you don't honor. Critical people don't grow. But people of honor can appreciate sacrifice. And then when you sacrifice, the Bible says everything that you sow, you will reap. And, and every dad, every mom, every boss, every leader, every employee wants honor. And so uh, this is a family that is, they're, they're going to show their story today. I'm talking about powerful story. And so we are honoring Pastor Chad and Monica. Y'all give them a big hand. Come on. Welcome to the house. It really is an, an honor to be here. Uh, I didn't say this in the first service, but I'll tell them, um, during that season of Stephen and, and Katie getting ready to plant the church, they actually approached us and said, would you like to come start the church with us? And, uh, and we turned them down. And, and that first year driving that bus, and <laughs> there was one night, man, this fifth grader who was as tall as me chest bumped me and was like, what are you going to do? And I was like, Lord, Really? Is this what you call me to do? Like, and I was like, I should have, I should have, I should be in Rogers, Arkansas right now. <laughs> I miss God. I know I did. I, this is not it. Um, and that's kind of been our ministry journey. Started off way too young, and, but we had a lot of passion and 22 years old, became a senior pastor. And I've hired a lot of 22 year olds in the last couple of years to do creative stuff in our church. I'd never tell any of them to go do, <laughs> do what I did, um, but the Lord blessed us there, and I remember that first Sunday, we had 20 people, and I thought, if we've doubled at the end of the year, we've, if we have 40 in December, we've, we've, God's moved, and in nine weeks, we had 150 people <laughs> there, and in four and a half years, we baptized over 300 people, and God just moved, and, um, and most of my life, I told Stephen this last night, I feel like a turtle on a fence post. I don't really know how I got there, but the view sure is awesome. <laughs> Have you ever seen a turtle on a fence post? <laughs> if you ever do, he has no clue how he got there, but for the first time in his life, he has a vantage point like never before. <laughs> and, uh, and so um, I do, before I honor your pastors, I want to honor my wife. She's here uh, with me, Monica, and our heir. She'll be eight weeks old on Tuesday. And um, I, I, I grew up in old school Pentecostal church. And so my mama and my pastor made me think the rapture was going to happen. So I was never one of those guys that just dreamed of like what my family was going to be like, that I was going to get married. Because the trumpet was going to sound, and I was going to miss all of that. And, uh, and so I'm living my best life because I never knew that I was going to get this far. And, um, uh, and really, I'm glad because I could have never dreamed of how good it is. I, I, have, I live with four women, so that should cause you to pray for me as often as you could. And uh, <laughs> somebody knows. My wife says she lives with four kids, me and our three daughters. And so pray for both of us. <laughs> but... In all honesty, Pastor Steve and Pastor Katie, thank you uh, for letting us be here. You guys are the real deal. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but you have some of the greatest leaders, in my opinion, uh, in the country. You guys are awesome. You guys are incredible. And, um, and I'm thankful for people who believed in me when there wasn't much to believe in. And, uh, and who would. there was a lot of guys who I would have called back then that wouldn't have came to Carothersville, even though it's a booming metropolis area, and I have no clue why they wouldn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> um, but you, you never thought less of us for being where we were. And, and I look back now, man, and I'm like, man, what hotel we put him up in? We should have done better than that. <laughs> you know, like, I look back now and I'm like, we should have done better. But I didn't know. I did the best I knew. And you saw that. And, and thank you guys for, for believing in us all those years ago and for letting us be here today. Uh, let's, let's get into the word. Um, we'll get to Ruth chapter 1 here in a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in this house. And thank you for opportunity to minister a word. And I pray over the next few moments you give us ears to hear a mind to comprehend, and a heart that's willing to respond to your word and to your presence today. And I pray, God, that you would use me in spite of my fears, my failures, and all of my shortcomings. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to preach a message to you today entitled, Unwelcomed Interruptions. And, uh, and if you've lived any amount of life, you know this, interruptions are unavoidable. Uh, you, you, can't, you can't avoid interruptions. We make plans, but life interrupts all of those plans. And, and seasons of life will teach you there are some welcomed and some unwelcomed interruptions. Um, if I'm having a busy day and, or a stressful day and, um, you know, staff's getting on my nerves, whatever, and my wife calls and says, Chad, you want to go to lunch? That's a welcomed interruption. Um, when I hear the pitter-patter my four-year-old's feet across the hallway at bedtime to tell me one more time, I love you, Daddy, that's a welcomed interruption the first time. <laughs> By the fourth time, I'm like, don't tell me you love me again until in the morning. <laughs> don't get out of it. It's all the threats, you know. Um, there's a Vietnam War vet in our church named Ralph, and uh, he's a retired and big fisherman. And when he calls me, he called me a few weeks ago, said, Chad, you want to go fishing? And I said, yes, I do. Uh, welcomed interruption. Uh, but then there are so um, not so welcomed interruptions in life. There's never been a day, a situation or time frame where I've had a flat tire and thought, thank you, Jesus. This is what I was hoping for today. <laughs> never got a, a ding on my phone that said your flight's delayed and thought, man, that's what I was. I wanted to sit here and spend more money on Burger King than I should. This is... Um, pandemic. Never thought about having one, but I'm confirmed don't want another, you know, never unwelcomed interruptions. It's been 533 days, 76 weeks, roughly 18 months since my wife and I faced the most unwelcomed interruption of our life. And on August the 23rd, 2020, that will be a date that's forever seared into our memory. We'll never forget that date. Um, just 10 days prior, I'm a, you know, I'm a pastor, so I'm always thinking of messages and I don't know how pastor Steven does it or some of your other communicators, but I keep notes on my phone. And when something comes to mind or I'm reading or something happens throughout the day, I just start notes. And, and I, I went back a few weeks ago and looked and said, I know I was working on this message. How long before it was, was it before the August 23rd? It was 10 days before August 23rd. I've been working on a message that I was going to preach called a welcomed interruption. Because I've been reading the story in Luke 8 of this woman with the issue of blood and, and how she crawled through the crowd, how she touched the hem of his garment. And when she did that, Jesus stopped everything, said, who touched me? His disciples said, everybody's touching you. And he said, no, somebody touched me differently. I felt virtue. And, and, and how she stopped the entire processional, how Jesus didn't get mad or or upset, or shun her, or say, leave me alone. He welcomed 
her interruption, and I thought, man, I'll, I'm going to preach on how, how when we, how our desperation and desire can place a demand on Jesus, and he welcomes our interruptions because he's a God who's not too busy to stop for us. And that's still true. He's, all of that is true. But, but then came that Friday, a few days later, August the 21st, our lives were interrupted, and we didn't welcome it. And I found myself reading Scripture and thinking through stories with a, with a set of glasses I'd never worn before. And all of a sudden, I couldn't read Luke 8 the same way. So I was reading Luke 8 again on this woman with the issue of blood, and I, and I began to highlight another guy in the story. You see, the whole story of that started with a guy named Jairus who's a dad who came to Jesus and said, my daughter's really sick. Can you help me? Will you heal her? And he pleaded. And Jesus obliged and said yes. And so when Jesus, when the woman interrupts Jesus, he's on his way to perform a miracle. He's on his way to fulfill a task. And, and in the middle of his, his agenda that day, this woman shoves her way through the crowd. She, 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 she stops the entire processional of the event. And she interrupts the agenda of the day. And she got her miracle. But in the middle of her, yes, Lord, that's not the trumpet, that's the siren, all right? <laughs> in the middle of, um, of her getting her miracle, you read this in, in Luke chapter 8, verse 49. One of Jairus' friends shows up, guy he knew, pulls him off to the side of the crowd because he's got news that's best not shared in company. And he says... He says the words that daddy should never hear. He says, don't bother the teacher. Your daughter's dead. And what was a welcomed interruption for this woman who had an issue of blood, all of a sudden became a very unwelcome interruption in Jairus' life. Because you have to wonder, what if they hadn't stopped? What if the processional would have kept going? What, no, what, 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 if, what if this woman hadn't bullied her way through and interrupted everything that we had planned? What if she hadn't have been insensitive? You see, you and I, we had the unique opportunity to read this story with hindsight. So we know the outcome. We know that at the end of that story, Jesus said, don't worry about your daughter. And, and he went and he raised the daughter from the dead. But you have to take a moment and let's not read this story from the lens of hindsight. Let's read it in real time. And for a moment, this daddy was, was faced with the most devastating news a parent can ever hear. Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher. And he don't know. He don't know Jesus is going to come through. He don't know that Jesus is still going to keep his promise. He, all he knows is life is different for a moment. And a lot of us have found, will find, or are living in a moment similar to that. Where life became interrupted and we're derailed from the track we were on. And, and we don't know the outcome. I can't read the end of the chapter. I can't, I, I, I don't know, I don't have the advantage of hindsight. I just have the, the reality of my interruption and the choice of how am I going to respond. And that's where all of us are. We have our interruptions and our responses. 533 days, 
76 weeks, 18 months. Never forget the moment our life was interrupted. For the first time in 18 months, we're going to share our story. Um, second time, because I already did it once today. <laughs> but it's, it's my wife's story as much as it is my own. Um, you know, if you're not careful, I've learned this over the last decade of ministry. You can preach things too soon. And, and really, you, you, you heal the wound and show the scar. Um, and show here's how I've healed of what I've been through. If you do that too early, you bleed all over people. And so... This is the first time we feel healed enough to talk about it. Um, but it's not just our story. It's all of our stories. Different names, different faces, different time frames, different interruptions. But I can guarantee you we're all going to have faced similar emotions. Probably asked a lot of the same questions. And we're left with the reality of our interruption and the choice of our response. So as it turns out, there's several people in the Bible like Jairus. They faced unwelcomed interruptions. And so I'm thankful that this is a content that had a lot of backstories. It had, you know, and here's the thing. In the Bible, in our life, some of these guys caused their interruptions. Some of them didn't. In my experience, it's easier to deal with interruptions that I have a fault in than it is the interruptions I don't have a fault in. So like Jonah and the whale, you get swallowed by a fish and puked up three days later. I mean... You, you, he told you what to do and you said not doing it. You get what you get. My mama used to say sometimes you got to lay in the bed that you make, right? And so, so those situations are different. But what do you do with like Jairus? He didn't do anything. There's other people. So I'm going to preach to you from a few people today like Ruth. Actually, Naomi in the book of Ruth who faced unwelcome interruptions in a moment. We'll go to John 11. We're going to talk about three of Jesus' best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, their interruptions. But in Ruth chapter 1, it starts with the story of a lady named Naomi. She's a wife. She's a mama to two boys. They move away from home to get to new work. They're a happy family, and then they face an interruption. Here's what it says in Ruth chapter 1, the first five verses. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of that man was Elimelech. His, the name of his wife was Naomi. The name of their two sons were Malion and Chilion. They were Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then verse 3 says, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. Verse 4, those two sons do what a lot of young men do. They took wives from the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. I used to read that real fast and say Oprah, but it's not. It's Orpah. <laughs> says they stayed there about 10 years. So she loses her husband, but she still has her sons. They get married, and then you get to verse 5. Then both Malion and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. If you were to read the book of Ruth from the first verse to the last, it's only 85 verses. And in 85 verses, it only took five for her to lose everything. She lost her home. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. And in five verses, her entire life was interrupted. We all live through five verse moments. 
where one phone call changed everything about your life. Where one knock on the door changed everything about your life. Where one text message that you cannot unread changed everything about your life. One, one rumor that wasn't a rumor changed everything about your life. You, you see, have you ever lost a whole lot in such a small span? One phone call, one text message, one meeting with your boss, one crossword with your friend, one disagreement with your wife, and now everything is different. You see, we all have five verse moments where in a matter of no time, our lives are forever different because of an unwelcomed interruption. I want you to see this in your mind. Picture this with me. Here is a lady who, who has a husband and two kids. They're a happy family of four. Everything in life is good. Everything is well. They're living out the dream. And then out of nowhere, an unwelcomed interruption, there's a famine that strikes the land. And so, so they, they have to relocate their entire life. The husband goes into survival mode. He says, I'm going to do what I have to to provide for my family. So he leaves everything familiar. He moves to a place called Moab. He leaves his, his home. He leaves his friends. He leaves his, his culture. He moves to Moab. Moabites don't even like Jewish people, but he's doing what he can to survive. And so he moves to a place where he's not welcomed and, in that, and they, they've, they've made that transition. And then all of a sudden, we don't even know what happened, but we just find out he's gone. The Bible doesn't elaborate, but Elimelech dies. And the son, so Naomi is now left without a husband but her sons. And she still has someone she can depend on, someone that she can confide in. They, they get married. They do what young men do. They get married and, and they're living their life and they're starting off as a young family. And then just a verse later, again, no backstory, no context, just that they're both gone. She's left now with a broken heart, a bitter spirit, and two daughter-in-laws to provide for. And what happens in the next few verses is Orpah says, I just, I'm going to go back home. Makes a wise decision. I'm going to go back home. Ruth, Ruth says, I'm going to stay with you. That's where you, you see the verse where you go, I'll go. Where you lay your head, I'm going to lay my head at. Your people going to become my people. And she says, I'm sticking with you. We pick up that story in the end of chapter 1 because they hear the famine is over. Here's what it says in verse 18. It says, when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. So Ruth said, I'm not leaving you. And Naomi said, whatever, come on. <laughs> the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? When we read this story in our language, we can't fully grasp what's happening. But Naomi, when she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, she is literally saying, the Lord has not been good to me. He's dealt bitterly with me. I'm, I'm not the same person I was. My countenance has changed. My life is different. Stuff has happened and you don't know me anymore. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew, if you study these names, they have very specific definitions. And so in the Hebrew, the name Naomi means pleasant, that she's a pleasant person. It characterized her disposition. It showed her personality that when Naomi left a decade prior, she was a pleasant person. But 
All of a sudden, this hurt and this heartache over the last decade changes her, and she says, call me Mara. Mara in the Hebrew means something different. Mara in its original language means that I'm bitter. It means to be bitter. So the two names describe her personality and her disposition. The heartache and the grief change her countenance. Who she was is completely changed because of the hurt and the hate and the frustration and the anger that's pent up on the inside of her. How do you go from Naomi to Mara? It's almost like if you're from an older generation, the difference of um, Aunt B and Miss Olson. You know what I'm talking about? If you're from my generation, it's the difference of Miss Honey and the Trunchable on Matilda. Come on, you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, how do you go from this to that? How do you, how does that happen? Bitterness changed Naomi, and it'll do the same to every one of us. You see, it all started with an unwelcomed interruption. Isn't it interesting how life can change you? She's only, you got to put this into perspective. The lady's only been gone from town 10 years. All right. So I, I graduated high school 15 years ago. And every once in a while, I'll go back home, visit my grandparents, something like that. And I'll run into somebody in the grocery store or out to eat that I went to high school with. We're all a little bit thicker than we used to be. But, <laughs> but I still notice them by face most of the time. There's not been anyone in the last 15 years that I've ran into and thought, who are you again? Something so bitterness literally changed tomorrow from the inside out. And what was, what was on the inside changed her countenance on the outside. And now she's not even recognizable. And what, listen, what we're learning is you have to guard your heart. There has to be a shield around your heart that I'm not going to let bitterness seep in. I'm not going to become Mara. If, if Naomi teaches us anything, it's to guard our heart against bitterness. But she also, and I'm going to show you how she does this. She teaches us that God does not waste our pain. I have a friend, and, and he, uh, I've, I've hijacked this and preached it all over everywhere I go. Because um, he, he told me one time, he said, I, we have the covenant names of God. So we sang about one a moment ago, Jehovah Jireh, he's our provider. Jehovah Nisi, he's a banner of victory. Jehovah Shalom, he's our peace. Jehovah Rapha. It's a, and there were moments in scripture where God would reveal something about his covenant nature and they would give him a covenant name. And so my friend Brian, he said, I gave God a name. I made one up for him. And I said, what is it? He said, I call him Jehovah Frugal. <laughs> and he said, because God don't waste anything, especially our pain. And I want, if you hear anything today, hear that. If you're walking through pain, you serve a God of Genesis 50, 20, what the devil meant for evil, God will turn around and he'll use it for good. God doesn't waste pain. In the book of Ruth, it's 85 verses and in five verses, she loses everything. But those next 80 verses is a story of redemption. It's a story of restoration. It's a story of destiny. It's a story of purpose. You, you see, the pain is not wasted because what, what happened is Naomi and Ruth moved back. And I can't preach the whole chapter, the whole book to you. But Ruth, trying to provide for her and her mother-in-law, finds herself in a field of a guy named Boaz. Boaz becomes her kinsman's redeemer. They get hitched. They marry up. And they start life together out of their lineage comes a guy named David. Out of his lineage comes a man named Jesus who became the savior of the world. And you got to realize none of that happens unless there's pain. 
If her life does not get interrupted, then Jesus, David doesn't get born. He doesn't fulfill his destiny. Prophecy can't be fulfilled. All of that came out of a moment where God said, it's going to hurt like you've never known, but I'll use it. Watch me. What if it's not about you? What if what you've went through is not for you, but so that you can help someone else in their darkest moment? You see, it may only take five verses to make a mess out of things. And 80 verses to fix all of that. But those 80 verses hold so much redemption and love and healing that in the end it's all going to be worth it. So Mara teaches us, guard your heart against bitterness. God will never waste your pain. And I'm going to flip over to the New Testament. I want to talk to you again. If I was a pastor in my church, I'd do this in a series and not crunch it all into one. But I only got one day, so we're going to get it all here. In John 11, there's also this story of Jesus, and he's got these close friends. It's, it's his closest friends outside of the 12 disciples. It's the, we don't know. Scripture doesn't really expound on how they became acquaintances, but outside of the 12 disciples, you've got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and that's Jesus' buddies, okay? And, and so, so in, in the first six verses of John 11, what happens is Jesus gets, I don't know, it wasn't a text message, but somehow they get news to Jesus, letter, word of mouth. Jesus finds out and they say, Lazarus, your friend is sick. Don't understand how, don't understand why. But the Bible says Jesus waited two more days where he was. Then he decides, okay, it's time to leave. We'll go check on Lazarus. Him and the 12 disciples get into an argument because he wants to go back through Judea. And they say, we don't want to go through there because we just escaped a murder plot there. They tried to stone us last time. Can we find an alternative route? And so they're map questing how to get there with different routes. And finally, they, they arrive. Martha, the sister, comes and finds him and says, hey, you're too late. Lazarus has passed away. They have a conversation about the resurrection, and then Mary shows up. And here's what the Bible says in John 11, verse 32. It says, Mary came where Jesus was and saw him. She fell down at his feet and said, Lord... If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. For all my, my Sunday school peeps, you'll know verse 35 because it was the easiest to memorize to get the star Jesus wept. <laughs> I never had a problem making the attendance star because my mama didn't give me an option. <laughs> she made me go to church, but the memory part, that was, so Jesus wept was a good friend to me. And then he said in verse 36, the Jews said, see how they loved him. I want you to notice Mary, Martha, and Jesus have lost Lazarus. It's an unwelcomed interruption. And now they respond. How do they respond? First, let's look at Mary. I love that in her moment of desperation, she ran and she fell at the feet of Jesus. Because my life experiences have proven that in how you respond in moments of crisis will do either one of two things. They'll put you closer to him or further away from him. 
And so Mary said, I'm not going to let what I've been through and the pain I feel cause a wedge between you and I. I'm going to run. I'm going to get close. It was really her disposition. This wasn't the first time and it wasn't the last time she found herself at his feet. She lived her life in a manner of staying at his feet. But she decided, I'm not going to let this become a wedge. But what I do love is that when she found herself at his feet, she didn't hold any punches back. She, she gut-wrenchingly, honestly said, Lord, if you've been here, I'm, I'm here. I'm not, I'm not going to, we're not going to get separated. But you could have done something. Have you ever found yourself in that moment? In that moment of crisis, that moment where your five verses happened, that moment where that text message come, and you just know, Lord, you could have made this situation totally different than what you have. That's where she finds herself. And in all honesty, this verse, this story bothers me more than most in the Bible because Jesus has made a reputation on showing up. Like if Jesus has a brand, his brand is... I'm here. <laughs> like, he's a God of proximity. He's a God who wants close relationship. He's a God who shows up. He, he showed up for Bartimaeus, who was blind. He showed up for the man with the withered hand in the temple. He showed up for his mama at a, at a wedding. He showed up for the disciples. Walk. Jesus always shows up. But this time, he didn't show up the way they thought he would. Our greatest struggle will always reside within the moments that God does things differently than we expected him to. And in those moments, you will choose how you respond. Mary didn't run away. She ran to Jesus. She stayed at his feet. But she was honest. She was gut-wrenchingly honest. I remember when I was in Bible college, I went through some stuff, and I was having a conversation with my mama, and I told my mama, I said, I'm mad at God, but I can't tell him. And she said, why? It ain't like you don't know. <laughs> and that was an epiphany for me. Like, that changed everything. Now, like, <laughs> I word vomit. <laughs> Repent, get rebuked, but word vomit. You know, like, Lord, here's how I feel. And she did that. So that's how Mary responds. But how does Jesus respond? It's very interesting. It says he wept. Now, what in the world would make Jesus cry? A lot of stuff makes me cry, okay? Bad news, death of a loved one, bills I can't afford, taxes. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that causes me to weep. <laughs> but I usually only cry about things I cannot change. What is it that Jesus cannot change? It's, it's, it's strange tears. In the middle of a conversation, he, he weeps. He sees the brokenness of his friends. He feels the weight of loss in the room. And he does what, what is uncommon, what doesn't even, what's uncomprehendable. He just starts, to, he tears stream down his face. After my wife and I's loss and tragedy, I read something about Jesus' response to Lazarus' death that was really helpful to me. It says, Jesus cried. He knew Lazarus was dead before he got the news. But he still cried. He knew Lazarus was going to be alive again in just a few moments. But he cried. He even knew that death is not forever. He knew eternity and the kingdom better than anyone else. But he wept. 
Because the world is full of pain and regret and loss and depression and devastation. He wept because knowing the end of the story doesn't mean you can't cry at the sad parts. And really, Jesus lives out his words that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I learned from Jesus that tears are not an indictment against your faith. I don't know, I just feel in my heart, let me... For the man in the room who feels like you've got to man up, for the man in the room who feels like you've got to bottle every emotion, tears are not an indictment against your faith. I know it's hard to grieve and lead at the same time. It's hard to grieve and lead your job. It's hard to grieve and lead your wife. It's hard to grieve and lead your kids. But you have to grieve and you do yourself and everyone around you an injustice when you choose to bottle all that up. That's what causes bitterness. That's what causes you to become Mara is when you say, I'm going to shove that all down inside of me. And then the next time you get messed up, the next time a situation happens, the next time it's not even a big deal, just a scuff on the wall, just a dent on the door, but you got shook up and you bottled it out and now it spews out of you because you didn't deal with it. Tears are, tears are not an indictment against your faith. It's been 533 days from the worst day of my life. August the 21st of 2020 was a big day for us. I told you that I'm the dad to three daughters because it's awkward to tell you that I'm actually the dad to three daughters and a son. And 533 days ago, my wife delivered a son. We held him, kissed him, and a few days later we buried him. And on the 21st of August in 2020, we went for a 20-week ultrasound. And I was pumped because I was, I'm outnumbered, guys. I'm outnumbered. And, and I can't tell you how excited we were to go there that day, but I also can't tell you how disappointed we were when the nurse, bless her heart, she literally, my wife asked a question and said, um, is the baby turned upside down? And she said, she looked at us and their eyes got big and she said, I've got to go get the doctor. And she ran out of the room. I mean, she, not, I'm not saying exaggerate, she ran out of the room. And my wife and I made eye contact. I ran to the side of the bed and we held hands and the only thing we could pray is, Jesus, whatever's wrong, let us fix it. Whatever's wrong, can it be fixable? That's, that's the only prayer we need to pray in that moment. Whatever is happening, let it be fixable. And the doctor came in her name is Dr. Woolard. She's delivered all four of our children. And she confirmed our worst fear. The baby has no heartbeat. It's probably been passed away for two weeks in the womb. She sent us home. She said, I'll call you from my personal number in the morning. Go tell your family. Go inform your work. Gather your thoughts. But you're not going to want to prolong this. And she was right. That night was the worst night of my life. And... 534 days ago, we drove back to the hospital. My wife was induced into labor, and 24 hours later, Monica delivered our son. It was the longest, loneliest 24 hours of my life. I'm going to be honest, literally times I thought I'm going to lose my mind. 
How, how I don't know what I, I don't know how to deal with this. We were in the middle of height of a pandemic, and so nobody was allowed in. I wasn't. People could drop stuff off at the door at the entrance outside of the hospital, and the nurses would go get it and bring it to me. I couldn't leave. I didn't see a soul for a whole weekend. I didn't see a soul on the floor outside of the nurse that walked in and out of our room. My wife was medically had medicine. She was she was asleep. For most of that time, and I didn't, I didn't bring anything to entertain myself. It wasn't one of those moments, and so all I could do is sit there with my thoughts and my questions and my tears. It was the worst 24 hours of my life. And 533 days ago, around 6 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, after 24 hours of labor, Monica and I held the, the body of our son. I can't tell you. How much and how hard I prayed on that night 18 months ago. You see, a few weeks before, I had, I had been asked to preach or to teach a group of pastors, which is still the most uncomfortable thing I get to do because I'm still, right now, not for much longer, but for now, I'm still the youngest guy in the room usually. And so I, I thought, God, what do you want me to preach to these preachers? What do you want me to do to people who have been in ministry longer than I've been alive? What do you say to those guys? And I just... Felt like the Lord told me to tell them, and, and I did. I said, I feel like the Lord wants you to believe for yourself what you believe for other people. Because of pastors, I know it is for me. I'll pray for you, and, I, and if you come to me with, the, I'll believe God for your marriage. I'll believe God for your miracle. I'll believe God to do supernatural things in your finances. But I have a hard time applying that to myself sometimes because I know myself, and I know where I fell, and I know my, where I've fallen short. And, but that night, I, the Lord reminded me of what I had taught. And, and I just prayed. I said, God, I'm going to believe for myself. That if somebody else in my church called me and said, here's my situation. Will you pray for a miracle? I'm going to pray like I would pray for them. I'm going to believe like I would believe for them. And I begged and I pleaded and I asked God to do a miracle. And somewhere around midnight, I sent a text message to my three closest friends. I sent them Psalm 30, verse 5, that says, Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And here's the message I sent them. I've tossed and turned, laying beside Monica, attempting to sleep for the last three hours. I finally gave in, assuming it had to be almost morning to find it was just past midnight. When I saw the time, Psalm 30, verse 5 came to mind. Since 12 a.m. marks a due day, it's technically morning. Faith and fear are in an all-out war in my spirit. I just keep thinking, maybe the weeping will stop and the joy will come. Jesus once saw a grieving mother outside the city of Nain stop the whole funeral procession and brought her son back to life. If he can do that, I believe he can make my son's heartbeat again. By request, the doctor will check for a heartbeat one more time before going through with the planned delivery. The fear in me says to let this go. What's done is done. Don't cause yourself any more disappointment. But my faith says this would be a great time for a miracle. This isn't a request I can send out across the board. I'm only sending it to three men. Here's my request. Will you pray with me? Will you pray that when the doctors search again, they would hear a heartbeat and that God would do a miracle? I want you to listen to the last thing I typed in that message because... It's become foundational for my journey the last 18 months. If he doesn't, I'll trust him anyways and look for him in our grief. 
but I would rather live the rest of my life knowing that I had the faith to ask God for a miracle than live with the regret of always wondering if he would have done it. And I still stand here 18 months later saying, I would rather preach this message telling you I had the faith to pray for a miracle than to stand before you and wonder, would God have done something if I had believed? I drove to the hospital that next morning, faith and fear in an all-out war colliding inside of me. I, they weren't going to do it. They were done on their end. But I just said, Dr. Willard, will you please do another ultrasound? And it was the same same empty screen, same empty noise, no heartbeat. I wish, I wish I was standing here telling you about how God did a miracle. I have asked God questions I never thought I'd ask him. <laughs> I have felt emotions that I thought I was too spiritually mature to feel. <laughs> I blamed myself. I blamed the devil. I blamed God. I have stolen what Mary said in John 11 and said, Lord, if you had been here, if you'd have shown up the way I thought you were going to show up, why, why didn't we deserve it? Why, why weren't we good enough? I've asked questions. I, God, am I being punished? God, did I do something wrong? God, was my prayer life not strong enough? Why? And I want you to understand, please know, I have walked with God long enough to know all the answers to those questions. That's not how God operates. God is not a passive-aggressive God that devastates our lives to get his point across. That's not who God is. So I'm not standing here naively blaming God. I'm just being real with you because I understood for the first time when the daddy approached Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I finally understand those words because what I know in my heart and, when I, and getting my head to catch up are not always this. It was just this disconnect. And I want to tell somebody in the room, your disappointment is not a sign of a lack of faith. It's a sign that you had so much faith that God could. You see, I lived for several weeks after that thinking, God, I'm so disappointed. I wish that I had more faith. But the reality was, is I had so much faith. My disappointment wasn't because of my faith. It was because of my expectation. So chances are, maybe some of you in the room can relate. I prayed with a dozen people in the first service who could relate. But maybe you can't relate to that story, but you've still had an interruption. <laughs> you've still had an interruption, and you've still felt the same emotions and the same frustrations, and you've still asked the same questions. Worship team, if you'll help me. If I could culminate it all, I'd say these few things to you as I wrap up. Here's what God has taught me over the last 18 months. Number one, when you find yourself in an interruption, look for God in the middle of it. I heard a gospel singer say a few years ago that I seldom find God in my plans, but I often find him in my interruptions. And you think about your life. You think about the interruptions that you faced in different seasons. And did God not show up? With your hindsight that you can look at previous experiences, did God not show up? So look for God in your interruptions. Second thing I would tell you is, and I don't mean this as a preacher, just a preachy thought, but it is a real, what seeped into my heart that Saturday in that hospital, is I would encourage you to still dare to hope in the face of interruption. The only thing I had with me was my phone 
in this Bible. And that, that Saturday sitting in the hospital, I opened up my Bible to Lamentations 3. If you open up my Bible to Lamentations 3 today, you'll you see the bulletin for my son's service. The notes the doctor wrote trying to explain to me what had happened. And the tissue from the funeral. That's what's there in, in Lamentations 3. Because I keep going back to remind myself. Because I read that Saturday in the hospital. It's on the headstone of my son. It says, I'll never forget this awful time as I grieve over my loss. Yet I will dare to hope. And what it was was a man in the middle of chaos and loss said I'll never forget it I can never go back it's the five verses I can't rewind but in the face of it all I'm going to trust you and I want to encourage somebody in the room in the face of the worst days of your life trust him anyways dare to hope the tears won't be wasted dare to hope that one day the pain you feel now won't be as strong dare to hope that your faith is being made stronger and I live with this deep conviction dare to hope that God is always up to something good even in the darkest moment he's still up to something good guard your heart against bitterness be honest about your emotions we talked about that a few moments ago remember God won't waste your pain Sitting on the front row is my wife. We, our eight-week-old baby. And that, I, that's, that was an accident. I don't mean that, like we're glad she's here, but that was, that's the only kid that wasn't planned. You know, the, other, the other three were planned. My wife, my wife has terrible sickness throughout pregnancy, so we were going on a vacation to Mexico last year, and she was like, I'm not going pregnant because I don't want to throw up the whole time I'm in Mexico and she went nine weeks pregnant on accident <laughs> and uh, and I'll never forget when we went to the hospital or to the doctor to confirm what we thought that she was pregnant and Dr. Woolard, the same doctor who had been with us just a few months before she, she said the due date it's December the 28th of 2021. And we locked eyes and I fought back tears because December the 28th of 2020 was our son's due date. And we could not have planned that. We could not have made that happen. And all I could look and see, listen, it was one of those moments where I just felt like God nodded in my direction and said, I just want to remind you that even in your worst season, I've not left you. I want to remind you, even in your worst season, God doesn't leave you. I took my, my oldest daughter, six years old. Her name is Kendall. I took her hunting for the first time this last October on a youth hunt and uh, it was a fun day we had a, we had a lot of memories I, I'm on a lease up north of where we're from and we stayed in a hotel close by because little girls don't tent camp very well and so 
It was rainy, and so I, I took her, and we stayed in a hotel. We ate dinner together. We got up the next morning, and, and we spent all day in a, in a blind, and she shot an eight-point buck at the end of the day, and so it was a big, big day for us, a lot of fun. I took her to the taxidermist, and I said, uh, "You can, because they could hydro-dip the skull. So I said, you pick out whatever you want, baby. And she's, she said, I want it pink with cheetah print on top of it. You are your mother's daughter. <laughs> Your skull, baby, whatever you want. A lot of memories that day. But one of the memories was on the walk-in. We rode the four-wheeler up to a certain point and stopped. And I said, baby, we got to walk from here to where we're going to hunt from. And we're walking way early in the morning, way before sunup. It's pitch black. And I'm holding her hand. And at one point, she stops me and brings me to a halt. And she said, Daddy, I'm scared. It's dark. And I looked at her. I looked at her. And I, you would never believe it. We have all of our kids are blonde-haired and blue-eyed. And I don't. So, but, so I looked down at these big blue eyes. And I said, Kendall, I know it's dark. But Daddy knows where we're going. And I'm going to get you there safely. And I want you to understand something this morning. I didn't drive seven hours in the aftermath of a snowstorm to come to Rogers and throw a pity party for me and my wife. I came here because I feel like I'm on assignment to remind somebody in the room that I serve a God who walked with me in my darkest moment. I didn't know how we were going to get through it. I didn't know 18 months ago that there would ever be light again. But the same God who walked me through my darkness showed up at the house in Rogers, Arkansas this morning to remind somebody in the room, I know it's dark. But I know the way through this. I'll guide you. I'll lead you. I'll walk with you. I want to lead you in prayer today. Let me pray over you. I want to pray two prayers. The first, I pray this prayer every time I preach, no matter where I'm at or what the room is, because... I think it's the most important thing we'll ever pray, the most important opportunity you will ever be given. If you're here today and your life is that you're living is contrary to the Word of God, you haven't surrendered your life, maybe you've prayed for forgiveness and repented, but you've walked away from that. I grew up in Pentecostal church where every time you stubbed your toe, you were going to hell, so I have been saved a lot. I've been water baptized like six times true story um, just to make sure I should have like teenage years I should have just kept a pop-up tent in the altar because you know and I I sit in rooms like this and services like this or in altar calls like this and I believe the lie I can't pray that prayer again I prayed it so many times that it's never stuck but 15 years ago I sat in a service like this and I prayed the prayer again and that time it stuck Maybe you're here and you're saying, I've prayed that prayer before. But it, it's never worked. It's never stuck. I want to encourage you, pray it again. Because this could be the time that it sticks. This could be the time that something settles in your spirit and it changes everything forever. So if you're here, you're going through darkness, I want to help you. Don't go through it by yourself. With every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make a spectacle out of you. 
I'm not going to ask you to stand or come to the front. I'm not going to come back to you. I just want to lead you to where God is today. If you're here and you say, I need to make that decision to surrender my life. I would love the opportunity to lead you in that prayer and help you make the greatest decision you will ever make. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to know who I'm joining my faith with today. On the count of three, the only thing I ask is you raise your hand. If you say, hey, that's me. I want to pray that prayer with you. One, two, three. Is there anybody here? I see that hand and that hand and that hand and those hands and that hand and that hand. Thank you, Jesus. I don't know how you do it here, but can we do how I do it at my church? Can we lead them in this prayer together? If you will, let's pray. Say, dear Jesus, I acknowledge that I need you. I ask you to forgive me. Forgive me of my sins, my attitudes, my actions, my addictions. Today, I repent and I acknowledge that I now belong to you and you belong to me. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, can we celebrate with all the people who just prayed that prayer? Oh, come on, you can do better than that. <laughs> Hey, the Bible says when somebody gets saved, all of heaven throws a party. Why do we clap right there? Because heaven is rejoicing. We just join in heaven in on your, your celebration. So, But I want to pray one more prayer before Pastor Stephen comes. Maybe you're looking at life and it's in pieces. You're looking at a relationship or a dream or a job or a miscarriage, a loss, a death. And what you thought was going to be a complete picture is now in pieces. I want to pray over you that somehow, some way, you'd experience the God I have experienced who shows up in darkness, guides you through, and redeems and restores and wastes nothing. Let me pray for you today, God. For those in the room who are looking at what is now pieces of a picture, pieces of a dream pieces of years of preparation pieces of loss and grief and heartache I pray that they would be reminded that you're not a God who sweeps those pieces into a pail, you're not a God who shies away from brokenness you are the potter and you know how to perfect the clay. You know you're a God who takes broken things and restores them back to value. You're a God who salvages the, the, and restores and puts purpose back in. And I pray as they look at their pieces, they would be reminded of a God who when He puts His hands on things, healing comes, hope is transferred, joy is restored and in this room for those walking through their darkness I pray that today in this moment they'd feel the strong hand of God and they'd hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit saying I know it's dark but I'm going to get you through this thank you for it Lord bless them and keep them make your face shine upon them turn your countenance towards them and give them peace in everything they do and everywhere they go in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear how this message impacted you. Feel free to let us know on the Contact Us tab of the House website. We hope you have a great week.